we are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body. You are listening to Wide Atlantic Weird, a podcast about why people believe weird things. I'm Kean, and here at the cabin in the woods somewhere in Wild West Cork, we investigate stories of monsters, ghosts, hauntings, UFOs, occasionally conspiracies, and occasionally a bit of weird fiction as well, to find out, well, why is it that people do indeed believe weird things. As always, you can get in touch with us over on Twitter, where we are at Strange Ireland, or Instagram, where we are White Atlantic Weird Podcast, and this is our Jurassic Park episode. So this one might be a little bit scatty. I have a lot of thoughts about the book Jurassic Park by Michael Crichton. I'm not entirely sure how I'm going to come out on this one. I've made a lot of notes. I have a lot of quotes. And uh, we're going we're gonna to get stuck into the man himself, his ideas, in particular his ideas about science, which are rather strange and about which I don't really know how I feel, regardless as to the fact that I'm a massive, massive, massive Jurassic Park fan. And if you like dinosaurs yourself, make sure you check out our very last episode. It was all about Peter Jackson's King Kong and the sort of history of lost world narratives in fiction. So on that note, I have a few thank yous and uh, a kind of community shoutouts to do. So first off, massive, massive, massive thanks to Natasha over in Toronto. She is our latest uh, patron over on Patreon. So if you want to join her, you can check us out on patreon.com forward slash wide Atlantic weird. We have three different tiers uh, at which you can help us out. For your thanks, you get an extra bonus episode um, every week, usually on a Wednesday. So at the moment, our last bonus episode is a really funny one where I'm talking to Ian Stokes, who you might recognize from our second Blair Witch episode and from our Doom episode. And uh, last week we spoke about the film series about The Conjuring. And uh, I do my best to say nice things about a kind of silly horror film series and Stokes brings in a lot of funny stories about uh, the Warrens who were the people behind the, uh, the, the the supposedly real stories behind that series of movies it was really really great fun this week for our bonus episode for patrons only I'm going to be speaking with the wonderful Mr. Chris Joyce who uh, who it must be said on the record for Jurassic Park trivia once drove uh, right across Britain to visit me when I lived in Surrey, dressed as Dennis Nedry from Jurassic Park while carrying a can of Barbasol and a straw hat and um, basically did the dogson scene for me upon arrival and uh, we did a bit of a road trip uh, in the UK back in those days. So Chris is a huge Jurassic Park fan. I'm looking forward to talking to him about it and we're going to be talking about the 1998 game Jurassic Park Trespasser, which was a a PC game that was um, long awaited. Uh, it was very ambitious and it didn't quite deliver and it has a lot of Jurassic Park lore in there. They even got Richard Attenborough, who of course is um, John Hammond, to do a lot of vocals and, and read a lot of lines. And we're going to be talking about the, the memoirs of John Hammond as they are presented in that game. So if you're interested in Jurassic Park lore, if you like the early films in particular and you're interested in the stories behind 
you know, the fictional uh, timeline for Jurassic Park, how the genetics behind the creation of the dinosaurs got started, how the park was built. We're going to be delving into all of that stuff. So that is hopefully our Wednesday Patreons episode. So head on over to Patreon to take a look and see if you'd like to support us and keep the lights on in the cabin uh, in exchange for a few small little trinkets like that. Oh, I have one other community thing to mention. So over on Instagram, we ha I had a nice chat this week with Wombat Woman, who is in Germany. And she's talking about our last episode, which is colonialism and King Kong. I loved, I'm always talking about colonialism. It's just that period of history that I find particularly interesting. And it's the period of history that gave birth to sort of adventure stories as we now know them and in particular the sort of lost world narratives so we ended up talking about colonialism a little bit and Wombat Woman um, we got to talking about um, descriptions of our people who follow you know weird fiction or write about weird fiction from a non-European perspective or from a you know done by people of colour or people from colonised nations and uh, she gave me some recommendations. She said, if you're talking colonialism and the psyche in general, she'd recommend excerpts from Black Skin, White Masks by Franz Fanon or Plantation Memories by Grada Colomba. They're both amazing authors. Also, Chinua Akebe, I hope I'm saying that right, wrote a response to Conrad's Heart of Darkness, which deals more with colonialism in fiction, if I'm not mistaken. So thanks to Wombat Woman, those sound like some good recommendations and I will be looking into those to sort of, you know, try and educate myself more about all, every angle of the colonialism stuff to add to my particular interpretations of uh, weird fiction and lost world literature. So, oh, let's get to Michael Crichton. So Crichton, if you don't know, is the guy who wrote Jurassic Park. Uh, he also wrote... The, the books that became Disclosure, Rising Sun, uh, Sphere, what else? Let's have a look here. Congo. A lot of these got made into films. Some of them are better than others. Uh, and the Andromeda Strain. I'm a huge fan because I when I, I was a kid when Jurassic Park came out, the film, and when I was a little bit older, I tracked down all the books and I read all of the ones that were sort of science fiction-ish. Uh, not so much the ones that were like sex thrillers, not my thing then and not really my thing now either. But he, I have to say he was a huge influence on me in terms of storytelling, in terms of the things I was interested in and definitely a big influence on me getting into science, which is ironic given what we're going to be talking about today. So you may know that in 2004, Michael Crichton wrote a book called State of Fear which is, is kind of infamous in the scientific world because it is effectively a thriller um, which takes as its sort of inspiration the world of climate denial. And it brings me no pleasure to say this as a long-term long Michael Crichton fan, but basically it's, it's, a, it's an apologetic work for uh, climate denial. Uh, that whole world is more than I can get into at the moment. What I can say, um, not getting into the uh, sort of science of the climate stuff, as it's just a massive, massive, massive thing, all I can say very quickly is history of the climate denial movement is known. It's not, and it's it's a known quantity. The history of it is, is tied up in the work of Exxon uh, when they first started working in the 70s with actual scientists and actual climate scientists who, you know, it was, it was a non-controversial topic at the time and only over the years did uh, PR... 
uh, firms from groups like particularly Exxon start to take this in a different direction. And as a social issue, that that history is known. A good starting point is a series of podcasts called Drilled, which is basically about the history of the creation and invention of this manufactured uh, controversy um, and the history of the climate denial movement. And the episodes are very short. They're only sort of 20 minutes long or less. So it's easy to get your head around the history of that. They took a lot of cues from... The, the sort of movement to deny the science about tobacco and cancer, if that uh, helps to give you a frame of reference for it. A lot of the same dirty tricks were indeed used and unfortunately have been incredibly successful to this day. So while a younger me was saddened and disappointed to see uh, a hero of mine like Michael Crichton buying into this nonsense, I now think that the seeds of this scepticism of, of, of the scientific world are much older and show up in quite a few of his earlier and more important works up to and including Jurassic Park itself and that's what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, Michael Crichton and his attitudes towards science and um, particularly within Jurassic Park. So I'm going to be combing through the book, I'm going to be reading out chunks of it and talking about it, discussing it, trying to decide what was Crichton's take on science and sci scientists at the time he wrote the book um, how did that change from the book to the movie? And uh, basically any other little bits of trivia uh, regarding Jurassic Park the uh, as, a, as a physical location, as a scientific project, because I'm still a massive JP fan at the end of the day, and I love lore and I love trivia. And that's one of the good things about the book compared to the film. In many ways it isn't as good as the film, but it's longer, it's bigger, and it goes into way more detail about the details of how the park works, uh, you know, how they got the dinosaurs, what looking after the dinosaurs is like. And it's, it's, it's not a fun experience, it's a much nastier story, it's much more mean-spirited than the film. It doesn't have the sense of awe and wonder that Spielberg maybe brings to it, but it's still a really, really good book in its own right, and I absolutely do encourage people to read it if you can get a copy. Now my frame of reference for this is an article from a website called And You Call Yourself a Scientist. I read this many many years ago, the article itself is from 2009. Uh, the woman who writes all of the articles for the website is a scientist herself named Liz with a Y, that's the only name I have for her, and this really shaped my thinking on both the film and the book for many years so I decided to revisit the article this week and read it again before I dive into the book. So I'm going to do a few quotes from this article and I will put a, a link to the uh, website so you can read it yourself. One very very interesting thing she says early on is if science fiction films have taught us anything it is that you must never 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 under any circumstances try to learn from your mistakes chiefly because any mistake committed for any reason is evidence of a process's fundamental unsoundness, not to mention immorality. Instead, you must dismantle, destroy and deny. I think my favourite example of this trope comes in the original version of The Fly, where André Delambre responds to his teleportation accident by burning his papers, trashing his lab and having his head squashed in an industrial press, rather than by, you know, installing fly screens. While in the real world the expression throwing the baby out with the bathwater might come to mind, in the world of science fiction obliterating all evidence of a failed experiment and never trying again or allowing anyone else to do so is the only acceptable response. 
So this is kind of thinking about Jurassic Park in as it is often referred to in in the vein of a Frankenstein story that is a tale in which man uses science to you know mess with things he was not meant to, to know and and upset the quote unquote natural order and that therefore whenever man does this you know there like like she says there's something fundamentally immoral about it and therefore when things go wrong it's never a case of oh well you know we we better try better next time or we have to tighten up on our you know our procedures it's like nope this was just wrong and you know almost from 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 the level of god this was something we should never even have thought about it's a bit of a tower of babel story you know how dare you uh, aspire to do more or how dare you aspire to try harder or learn more and and to me this is fundamentally unscientific it's 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 just a, a easy breezy uh, kind of a shutdown it's a, it's a thought terminating cliche as the phrase goes but we're going to we're going to dip into the book and see whether or not that in fact is the case so she points out that and i have to find this section in the article now a lot of the kind of bile that um michael crichton has for a scientist comes through in the character of henry Wu. you might remember he's only he's only in the first film for just a few moments when uh, we're in the scene at the beginning of the film where they're seeing the eggs in the hatchery he has <clears throat> more of a role in the uh, in, in the later films like in the jurassic world films he's a bit more of a character which is kind of cool i'm glad that um i'm glad that he gets a little more to do because he's quite interesting in the book and i will be reading out bits from the book henry Wu is another character somewhat rehabilitated by the screenplay in the novel he is being a scientist the target of a great deal of michael crichton's venom he is drawn as being completely professionally myopic. He spends all his time tinkering with DNA, unable to see outside the tiniest of boxes. He is very little interested in the ultimate outcome of his work, to the extent that not only can he not be bothered to learn the correct names of the various dinosaurs, but he doesn't even know how many species of dinosaur he has helped to create. Ian Malcolm, the author's mouthpiece, oh, and that's going to be important later, excoriates Wu and Ray Arnold as technicians, they don't have intelligence. They see the immediate situation. They think narrowly and call it being focused. So that is another thing I'm going to be looking out for as I make my way through the book. The characterization of Henry Wu as being sort of Crichton's overall take on scientists. And I think it is fair to say that uh, Malcolm in the book, who is even more insufferable than he is in the film, um, it definitely voices most of Crichton's own personal takes on the philosophical ideas that are inherent to the narrative. Finally, my last quote from this article, which kind of got to me, says, While I always read Michael Crichton's novels, it was a major downer to me that a science fiction writer who shaped his stories around, quote, real science, would so often be so very negative about it. What bothered me particularly was the obvious shift in his attitude over time, the move from writing cautionary tales to writing alarmist ones. I find it a disheartening journey from the Andromeda strain, with its realistic scientists doing realistic science, through the scientists are evil but dinosaurs are cool of Jurassic Park, to state of fear where, no, we're not going to talk about that. And neither am I. So that, that will remain uh, cheerfully up in the, <laughs> in the ether uh, as we have keep it at the back of our minds perhaps as we dive into Jurassic Park the book and see which of these ideas uh, are going to show up as early as this and how they will indeed uh, be treated so and so we dive into the reread 
There's going to be a lot of Jurassic Park lore. We're going to focus on Quentin's attitude towards science. There's going to be a lot of spoilers, obviously. Um, more or less, the story of the book follows the same way it is in the film. There shouldn't be too many surprises. If you're familiar with the film, you'll know most of what's going to happen. What, what is interesting are the differences, the wrinkles, the changes they had to make. I think a lot of the changes are quite good, actually. And um, it's worth noting that while the film was kind of pilloried at the time it came out for well just about every element besides the special effects and the dinosaurs watching it now it shows us how far we've fallen and how little we expect from blockbusters because the first jurassic park film is actually very very intelligently written has a very snappy dialogue and uh, going through the book you can see all the improvements they made they really all all the dna of the story is there in the book and just about everything has been tightened up uh, out of necessity so Jurassic Park is a what used to be called a techno-thriller, meaning that Crichton doesn't just want to uh, thrill you, he wants to educate you as well, so he is interested in science, regardless of his attitude towards it. Um, he does a lot of research and reading, and he sometimes puts entire uh, bibliographies at the end of his books to show you where he got his ideas from. The You could argue that this is a bit of a Jules Verne touch, like a Jules Verne attitude towards science fiction where he you know puts all of this information in there how successful that is depends on your own stomach for the the scientific info dumps that he does and the way he drops them which sometimes is clumsy i like that stuff and i even did when i was a kid but then i guess i was that kind of kid anyway the book is written in 1991 or was published in 1991 and the Jurassic Park incident, or the InGen incident, as it's referred to, is supposed to have happened uh, in 1989. So, at the right from the off, um, at the beginning of the book, there's this like lengthy, kind of journalistic-sounding uh, article about the state of uh, genetic engineering. Crichton describes it as a scientific gold rush, and he comments on the furious haste to commercialize these new developments in genetic engineering which is interesting to me because a lot of the stuff he's criticizing in this book and laying at the feet of science i can't help but interpret as actually being due to commercialism and he doesn't always separate the two and that's why i find it difficult to really ascertain his his real point or his real feelings here but we'll we'll, we'll get to it when we get to it so he i'm, I'm going to read out my first quote here so he's talking about um the InGen incident. International Genetics is the name of the company that creates Jurassic Park. And he's talking about the kind of stuff they do and, and the beginnings of this kind of boom in genetic engineering. And he says, much of the research is thoughtless or frivolous. Efforts to engineer paler trout for better visibility in the stream, square trees for easier lumbering, and injectable scent cells so you'll always smell of your favourite perfume may seem like a joke, but they're not. Indeed, the fact that biotechnology can be applied to the industries traditionally subject to the vagaries of fashion, such as cosmetic and leisure activities, heightens concern about the whimsical use of the powerful new technology. And the work is uncontrolled, no one supervises it, no federal laws regulate it, there is no coherent government policy in America or anywhere else in the world. And because the products of biotechnology range from drugs to farm crops to artificial snow, an intelligent policy is difficult. All right, Crichton, so far I'm with you here. I, I like the idea that you're aware of how daft it is to be using this technology for dumb, frivolous, fashionable things. I also like the idea that you think that there should be some sort of oversight, uh, whether it be governmental or otherwise, um, to prevent 
what I what I would see as like commercialization um, of powerful technology, regardless of the effects, regardless of the harm. I'm on board with all of that. And then he says, but most disturbing is the fact that no watchdogs are found among scientists themselves. It is remarkable that nearly every scientist in genetics research is also engaged in the commerce of biotechnology. There are no detached observers. Everybody has a stake. The commercialization of molecular biology is the most stunning ethical event in the history of science, and it has happened with astonishing speed. I'm not really sure what you want here, Crichton. You want, you know, in the absence of some sort of governmental policy, uh, scientists should get together themselves and somehow decide, you know, what genetic engineering should or shouldn't be be used for and then you're also saying that they're all kind of in the pocket of big business or they, they seem to work in big business and he goes on several times in the book to say that the the, the places in, in America particularly where you know science is being done and discoveries happen are no longer universities or sort of you know s- somehow these like ivory tower kind of laboratories which which was never the case I mean that that whole idea is nonsense he says oh how terrible it is that this work has shifted to you know, commercial interests. Commercial interests have always funded research and they've, you know, even even climate science and climate data from, you know, seemingly reputable sources, you know, on occasion, if you trace it, is coming from, you know, dark money coming from bad actors and same goes for a lot of medical stuff. So, I mean, it's always a compromise, unfortunately, and that's the economic reality of, of, of the world and the idea that scientists were once these kind of you know, noble and unbiased observers who weren't tied to uh, any economic entities and that they were somehow independent. I I just don't see it. Like, and the idea that scientists should be chastised for, you know, leaving university positions to go and work in in industry, which is something that Crichton harps upon frequently. I mean, I don't know what it was like in 1991, but I can tell you right now, um, uh, on a personal level, I know plenty of people who, you know, love science and would love nothing more than a, a career in, in straight-up academia without being tied to the compromises of of industry, and they can't afford to. The economics of the situation don't allow them to. Uh, that career path of staying in academia and uh, having a nice, stable career, uh, having a contract, it's gone. It's been completely undermined, and I know plenty of people who have moved out of science, who went into science, and this is something Lynn says in the article that you call yourself a scientist. She says, I, I don't know many people who like got into science to try and you know make it rich, but I know plenty of people who got out because they couldn't. And we're not talking about getting rich here. We're talking about somebody who just wants, a, you know, an ordinary amount of job security uh, for an honest day's work. And I don't really know, like, I feel like almost everything Crichton moans about in this book, it can be laid at the feet of both economics and industry. Um, and I think that when he talks about science itself, he's using this kind of weird straw man that science should be somehow, you know, holier than thou and held up on a pedestal and hey man, that that would be lovely, but uh, I don't think that ever was the case. He he then mixes real history and uh, fictional history in a way that's that's it's, it's genuinely interesting and, and cool from a science fiction point of view. He, he talks about Watson and Crick in the 1950s, and then he says in the 1970s, there was a famous meeting in which a venture capitalist approaches a biochemist at the University of California, and the two men agree to form a commercial company to exploit the gene splicing techniques their new company, Genentech, quickly became the largest and most successful of the genetic engineering startups. 
and then he kind of almost uh, seamlessly seeks into the creation of his fictional company InGen International Genetics uh, from this so I'm having a moan about like his ultimate attitude towards science but it's it's still a cool book it's still a really interesting and creative and clever use of reality and fiction and um, moving them in together. InGen uh, incidentally are uh, based in Palo Alto in, in California and I think the only thing I know about Palo Alto is my brother once uh, smuggled a banjo <laughs> out of Palo Alto uh, from my father but that's that's another story so we get to the the beginning of the what's called the ingen incident which is august 1989 and the opening scenes in this book are are, are brilliant and, and quite different to the film um in the film you've got that scene where you know the raptor attacks a worker and mangles his leg and uh, robert muldoon is going Shoota! and okay that's cool too but michael Crichton takes his time it's is a much longer slower build up to the to the reveal of the island and the dinosaurs which even though we know we know what's coming it's written on the back of the book we're not you know it's not a surprise and yet i find all of this stuff still this tension building this mystery i find it very 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 effective it's also like i said earlier it's much nastier and meaner and more vicious and the the dinosaur attacks are, are quite na quite horrible in this one so we have a worker landing in costa rica on, on the mainland to be treated by um, a nurse and He's got a strange scratch wound on him. We get mention of a, a supernatural being called the Hoopia. And this is an old trope in genre fiction, the superstitious locals. But it, this reminds me of the, the Kuripuri in, in The Lost World, the original 1912 Lost World, where the dinosaurs are reinterpreted by, you know, quote-unquote superstitious locals in, in terms of some sort of local supernatural boogeyman. And there's a bit of back and forth about the word raptor because the, the workman who's been injured is a, a Spanish-speaking uh, local and uh, in his sort of delirium he keeps saying the word raptor. And uh, the nurse looks this up in a book and finds it in a Spanish dictionary as meaning ravisher or abductor. Which, even though we know what the raptor is going to be later on because we've seen the film, I don't know, it's it's a spooky moment. It's, it's good. I just really like this whole build-up. We then get an attack on a beach of a, a young girl by the small green Campsonathus animals and this you'll recognize as being used later on in the beginning of the Lost World film so the the Jurassic Park book is so much bigger and so much more full of incidents than the film and uh, there's a lot of stuff that they they clearly liked but they just didn't get around to using until a little bit later and that's something we'll see several times as we make our way through the book and even right from the beginning, Crichton's use of detail here, he drops in a lot of medical information. He was, of course, trained as a, a as a doctor himself in Chicago, I believe, and used his medical knowledge. You know, he wrote ER and uh, the Andromeda Strain and various other sort of thrillers and, and TV shows that have a medical background. He drops in a lot of zoological stuff, a lot of paleontological stuff, and it's, it's genuinely interesting and it really... It, it it I mean for a sort of a pulp writer he brings uh, he brings a, a better game than a lot of other folks who were doing similar things at this time and it's not hard to see how this book really took off as you probably know there was a bidding war for the film before the book even got published so I mean everybody knew he was onto something hot here so all of these details really make the whole thing really quite convincing and honestly it's worth it's worth pouring through the book as a companion piece to the film because they're just they're good in different ways we'll get to that so 
There are these like sporadic lizard bites happening to people on the west coast of Costa Rica. And this tips us off that the animals from the island, even before the story starts, the animals from the island are somehow making their way to the mainland. And this is an extension of the story that doesn't exist in the film. The film doesn't have time to expand its its worldview to this level, but it's all going to fit into the whole chaos theory and in Malcolm's idea that right from the beginning the park is doomed and you know things are bad even before you recognize that anything is bad. And I have thoughts on that too. There is a horrible, grisly and memorable scene where a bunch of Camsonatas make their way into somebody's house and there's a baby in a crib and the baby gets torn apart by the animals that are sitting around the outside of the of the crib uh, like gargoyles I think it says that's horrible and gross and nasty and uh, quite memorable and and basically the kind of thing that Spielberg would would not have in one of his films mind you the the Jurassic Park films the early ones do have their grisly moments but I mean they wouldn't do that to a baby would they we then cut to um, Alan Grant, who is more or less as he is in the film. He's uh, he, he's a, a doctor of, of paleontology. He's working in Montana. We get the scene where his crew are um, uncovering a velociraptor skeleton. And we have to drop in here a little bit of paleontological stuff because this is well known. You probably know this if you're a fan, but one of Crichton's sources that he was using at the time was a book which had... Uh, Velociraptor confused what we now call a Velociraptor confused with what we now call Deinonychus. Um, so what Grant refers to in the book as Velociraptor Anteropus uh, is now we think a type of Deinonychus. Basically, they're both you know relatively small. Deinonychus is much bigger, so de theropod dinosaurs with with large claws in their feet. The the important difference is that in real life, what we now call a Velociraptor is exclusively, as far as we know. A, uh, an East Asian or a Mongolian animal, so a Velociraptor mongoliensis, and and was quite small, was was like a turkey size, I suppose, to quote the fat kid in the film. <laughs> um, interestingly enough, and I remember this happening when it happened, because I remember reading about the film before it came out, um, so they, they made the mistake of calling the animal in the film Velociraptor when, based on the size, you know, it's about three meters long or more, it should be a Deinonychus, and then during the making of the film, uh, a new animal called Utahraptor was uncovered, which was even bigger again. So, you know, allowing for a bit of fluidity with the scientific terminology, you know, a, a an animal resembling the Velociraptor in the film that would be in uncovered, you know, in a place like Montana isn't isn't off the charts. It wouldn't have been called Velociraptor, but it would have been a reasonably closely related animal. Of course, it would have would have had feathers, but that's another story. So this is coming, this book is written at a really interesting time because ideas about dinosaurs are changing and where people are moving away from the idea that they were slow and dumb and kind of destined for extinction. And instead uh, we have this idea, the thing, it's, it's what Darren Nash calls the, the dinosaur renaissance was happening. And this is down to uh, folks like John Ostrom and Robert Backer and a, a famous book called The Dinosaur Heresies. And it's just a really exciting time in paleontology and it's really cool that Crichton uses a lot of this material in his book and you know as Liz points out it's it's knowing that what we know about where he's going to go with his attitude towards science it's a little sad to see how excited he was at the beginning so he writes scientists had always classified dinosaurs as reptiles cold-blooded creatures drawing the heat they needed for life from the environment 
A mammal could metabolise food to produce bodily warmth, but a reptile could not. Eventually, a handful of researchers, led chiefly by John Ostrom and Robert Backer at Yale, began to suspect that the concept of sluggish, cold-blooded dinosaurs was inadequate to explain the fossil record. In classic deductive fashion, they drew conclusions from several lines of evidence. So he talks about posture, um, how uh, reptiles have kind of sprawled, bent legs, uh, birds don't and dinosaurs don't, suggesting that they're maybe closer to uh, warm-blooded is an old-fashioned term now, uh, endo endotherms I think is the correct term. Uh, he talks about metabolism, oh, and they studied trackways, fossil footprints left in mud, and concluded that dinosaurs ran as fast as a man. Such activity implied warm blood. The warm-blooded con controversy had raged for 15 years before a new perception of dinosaurs as quick-moving, active animals was accepted, but not without lasting animosities. At conventions, there were still colleagues who did not speak to one another. Which implies that, you know, at the time Crichton was writing the book, this was still kind of controversial, um, or at least had more than one side to it. I believe it's fairly established now, which just shows how, in theory at least, when it's done correctly, science is supposed to be somewhat uh, self-correcting. So we then, oh, we then get some stuff about Grant and how he's uh, an old-fashioned guy, and there's a little bit of, you know, old-fashioned pulp adventure hero stuff here it's very slight i mean he's still a scientist but he's he's the kind of scientist who prefers to be out in the field getting his hands dirty and he has nothing but scorn for those university types those hoity-toity ivory tower latte swilling uh surely left-wing libs <laughs> he doesn't go there but uh, one can intuit we then get some some interesting sort of legal background to this murky world of of genetic engineering and I just I just like how he he's trying to make out genetic engineering to be this kind of wild west world where all these uh, you know these scientists are being co-opted by nefarious corporations and and behaving like cowboys. He writes, In Ingen was obviously setting up one of the most powerful genetic engineering facilities in the world in an obscure Central American country, a country with no regulations. That kind of thing had happened before. There had already been cases of American bioengineering companies moving to another country so they would not be hampered by regulations and rules. The most flagrant was the Biosyn rabies case. So firstly, this is the introduction of like the bad genetic engineering company, Biosyn. That's S-Y-N as in like s synthesis. But yeah, we, we get it, Crichton, we get it. So... <laughs> If you if you only know my, uh, Jurassic Park from the film, uh, Lewis Dogson, who who meets Nedry in San Jose at the airport, um, is a representative of Biosyn in the the infamous We Got Dogson Here scene. So uh, again, I just I love all this extra because I was always fascinated by the the kind of cloak and dagger stuff when I was a kid and the the Barbasol can and the smuggling out of the embryos and it's it's a hoot to learn more about these like dueling feuding wild west uh, genetic engineering companies i'm really enjoying it we then get a story about how in the mid 80s they uh, tested a bioengineered rabies vaccine on a farm in chile didn't tell anybody didn't run it by the government you know made a bunch of people sick and uh, i mean if it, this should remind you of actual things that have happened um, in the u.s of all places where they they did tests like this and gave people bad things without uh, telling them about it so you know, it's absolutely not impossible. We then get a wonderful scene where they, they, they introduce John Hammond. 
and we're back at the 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 badlands in, in montana with with grant and with with ellie sattler who's of course laura dern in the film and they start talking about we find out that they're being funded by john hammond and that's something called the hammond foundation and there's a bit of back and forth about hammond and his character in the book is well different from the film and this is incredibly important because he is the mover and shaker behind jurassic park it's his baby it's his vision and so Crichton's treatment of him as opposed to spielberg's treatment of the same character is very interesting and it shows that they're coming from very different places and so interesting to see them tell the same story and use the same character to prove completely different points so there's a weird moment where Alan Grant is kind of defending um, Hammond and she says, oh, he's just this eccentric old rich dude who is a bit of a dinosaur nut. Oh, John Hammond, he says, is about as sinister as Walt Disney. And like much as I'd like to think this is irony, it's it's really clear from the context that it's not like they really literally mean uh, who, 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 who is the, you know, the typical generic, you know, friendly, safe, all American guy, Walt Disney, of course which, if you know anything about the man himself, is absolutely ridiculous. Even in the 90s, this is an, a naive, an unbelievably naive view to take. But anyway, as it goes on, we find out that the book version of Hammond is not at all um, unsinister. In fact, he is quite sinister indeed. And I'd just like to point out here that the... Uh, the, the di- While I said the dialogue and stuff is better in the film, and I, I would say characterization overall is better because... Crichton is kind of mostly interested in just giving us a wide range of characters, all of whom are kind of nasty or self-centered in, in some way, you know, with the exception of like Settler and, and, and Grant. Um, it's just so much fun to have all this extra background in the book. It's like it's like watching an extended director's cut of the film where you find out, you know, what was going on behind the scenes. How, how did all these connections happen? Like I said, where did the dinosaurs come from? And and there's just so much more lore. And I, I really do enjoy rereading the book for that reason, if no other. But it is overall a colder, nastier and more clinical, but very thorough and believable sort of companion piece to the book. And and this is made clear in ways like in the scene in Montana when, you know, Grant and Sattler are invited to go to the island by Hammond you know, he sends them on plans for the island and for the visitor center. And interestingly, Crichton doesn't give us maps here, which is the kind of thing he does do in his books. I was surprised there wasn't. But he gives us um, a good a description and a rundown of all the buildings, all the structures, all the paddocks. And it just makes the whole place feel real. And um, there's, it, there's incredibly detailed sort of builders reports and um, and stuff like that that makes it pop and makes it feel like like a real thing. And then we get a little bit of a background about Hammond himself. And Hammond is a bit of a showman. He's a bit of a P.T. Barnum. And famously, uh, he carries around a, a miniature elephant with him to in order to show off the, the possibilities of his new genetic technology. So when he's looking for investors uh, he, and he's having meetings and he's trying to impress them, at the key moment, he you know takes the curtain off this little cage and they see that he's got a tiny elephant in there. And uh, sure, you know they rustle up their wallets. So we have a quote here about that, which I've always liked. It says, The elephant was always arousing success. Its tiny body, hardly bigger than a cat's, promised untold wonders to come from the, from the laboratory of Norman Atherton, a Stanford geneticist who was Hammond's partner in the new venture. 
But as Hammond talked about the elephant, he left a great deal unsaid. For example, Hammond was starting a genetics company, but the tiny elephant hadn't been made by any genetic procedure. Atherton had simply taken a dwarf elephant embryo and raised it in an artificial womb with hormonal modifications. That in itself was quite an achievement, but nothing like what Hammond hinted had been done. Also, Atherton hadn't been able to duplicate his miniature elephant, and he tried. For one thing, everyone who saw the elephant wanted one too. Uh, Hammond also concealed from prospective investors the fact that the elephant's behaviour had changed substantially in the process of miniaturization. The little creature might look like an elephant, but he acted like a vicious rodent, quick-moving and mean-tempered. Hammond discouraged people from petting the elephant to avoid nipped fingers. This is brilliant, and it's exactly the kind of slightly loopy thing that would be quite unlikely to make its way into a film. It's just a little bit wacky and out there, and yet it does a lot of heavy lifting. It shows us straight away that Hammond is a showman and a P.T. Barnum, but he's also a little bit unsavory and isn't afraid to lie and misrepresent because, the he, like it says, he's talking about genetic power, but that's not what they used to make this elephant. And lastly, it tips us off as to the unpredictability of these sort of experiments. You know, you, you can make these animals, but you can't predict how they're going to behave and they're going to turn out in ways that you never expected. And that obviously is one of the main themes of the novel and one of the things that makes it into uh, what you might describe as a, a Frankenstein story. Worth noting as well, <laughs> given when this book came out and given the, the sort of preoccupations of Michael Crichton, um, all of the investors that Hammond is always banging on about are Japanese. So this is written at the time when Americans still believe that like the Japanese were going to, you know, economically conquer the world. And this shows up in weird pop culture places like, I mean, most obviously Crichton's book Rising Sun and the film made of that, which I think has Sean Connery in it. Uh, but other other ways like in, in Back to the Future when, you know, in the future timeline, Marty McFly's boss is a Japanese guy, the Nakatomi Towers from uh, Die Hard. So it was a bit of a bit of a thing in the 80s and it kind of dried up around the turn of the century rather I should say the turn of the 1990s probably in the interesting in this scene Hammond is explaining his dream about the park and he says you know this park is going to be for the children of the world and he says kids do set their hearts on things and you just have to think well so does Hammond and Crichton treads a weird line here because occasionally he tries to make out like Hammond is a true blue believer like he's a he loves what he's doing he cares about what he's doing he's deeply into dinosaurs and he has a lot of philosophical debates with Henry Wu about whether the dinosaurs should be quote-unquote accurate to their prehistoric selves and that they shouldn't change them or tweak them and then that's kind of like 30% of the time and like 70% of the time Crichton is just having Hammond be a greedy, money-grubbing bastard. Like, sometimes even in the same paragraph, because, you know, two lines later, he's saying, you know, Henry Wu, we must never forget the ultimate objective here is to make money, lots and lots of money. So, you know, one minute it's, this is for the children, and the next minute, oh, we're here to make money. And that's a, that's a discrepancy that did make its way into the film. Obviously, the scene in question is where you know, Hammond is... So So let's talk about film Hammond before I get to that. So I my belief is that Spielberg identified with <clears throat> Hammond as this big-hearted, you know, eccentric but effectively benign or positive showman who just loves dinosaurs, loves children, wants to give the world something that's real that they can marvel at and wonder at. 
And if you think about the the only scene in the film where he really is taken to task is, of course, the, that wonderful scene with the jelly, <laughs> where he's eating jelly and talking to Sattler, and she tries to, you know, call him to account. And and even at that moment where he realizes that he was wrong and he's put everybody in danger, including his own family, Spielberg still can't bring himself to to criticize Hammond wholeheartedly because Spielberg identifies with Hammond. He too wants to give the children of the world something wonderful and something new and something magical to look at, which he is doing in Jurassic Park. In, in when, when when Jurassic Park came out in 1993, and I was I was a kid, I was the target audience. Nobody had ever seen anything like this. And in Hammond's old own words, that was an attraction that drove kids out of their minds, and it really, really did. And and the awe and wonder that 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 Spielberg brings to this film is is the same awe and wonder that film Hammond wants to bring to the children of the world. And there's nothing cynical about it in that iteration. But in the book, he's he's a shitheel corporate schmuck money maker except when he's not and you know he just it, why is he so uptight about the dinosaurs being you know legitimate if he only cares about money it's a little bit it's a little bit two-faced i mean maybe he just genuinely likes dinosaurs or you know and wants to make money i guess uh, maybe i'm being silly and expecting his character to be so one-sided but i mean we're not we're not dealing with complex characters here in the book everyone is coded good or bad you know um, sort of greedy or altruistic more or less and just the the sort of dual duality of Hammond in the book strikes me as being a little bit sloppy rather than deliberate but you know you may feel differently yourself so the element of this dichotomy that does make it into the film is the scene where Hammond says you know we want all the children of the world to be able to access this park and um, the lawyer, Donald Gennaro, who's coded as being really evil in the in the film because he wants to make money, and he says famously, we're going to make a fortune on this place. He's horrified at this idea, and he's like, you know, we'll have a coupon day or something, but, you know, don't forget we're here to make money, which is basically how Hammond behaves in the book. And But there is, I mean, there is a contradiction here. If he really wants, if he's a good guy and he wants the children of the world to see the dinosaurs, why is he, why is he, putting them on this island in the middle of you know the the pacific ocean off of costa rica you know ensuring that only super rich people are ever going to be able to to get there so it's it's a little bit silly anyway some more little kind of background bits of information we learned that uh, hammond's foundation have an, an ingen uh, i i think it's not really made clear but i think you're supposed to get the idea that the hammond foundation is like a front for ingen because the Hammond Foundation is how he interacts with, you know, Grant's uh, scientific endeavors. He's paying for their digs in Montana. And uh, it's under the Hammond Foundation that they buy up a company called Millipore Plastic, who make this kind of plastic which has, quote, the characteristic of avian eggshells. So the Jurassic Park project is still a secret, but you can get, you can see where all these machinations are, are actually going. And then we get a little lecture on de-extinction and they talk about how even in the 80s people were talking about bringing extinct animals back to life and what this i mean in reality what this comes down to is taking living animals that are genetically close and then tinkering with them to give them the characteristics of prehistoric ones so for example an animal called a pyrenean ibex uh, went extinct in i think 2000 <clears throat> in europe and 
they did manage to I, I I don't know if this would qualify as the first technical de-extinction event but they did manage to um, bring one to full term and it lived for about seven minutes before dying so we have we have a ways to go but the idea would be if you took a contemporary pigeon and tweaked its uh, genetics so that it had the characteristics of let's say an extinct passenger pigeon and i mean the argument then is do you really have a passenger pigeon is what you have a passenger pigeon or is it just a tinkered contemporary pigeon and you know it's a little bit semantic but this is an idea that does come into the book and henry Wu and hammond have some genuinely interesting discussions about stuff like this now here's a bit i like so on page 67 we get a nice talk about the capitalistic drive and uh, see if you can guess <clears throat> uh, what Crichton's attitude towards this will be and for this zoo talking about jurassic park ingen can charge whatever they want two thousand dollars a day ten thousand dollars a day and then there is the merchandising the picture books t-shirts video games caps stuff toys comic books and pets pets of course if ingen can make full-size dinosaurs they can also make pygmy dinosaurs as household pets what child won't want a little dinosaur as a pet a little patented animal for their very own ingen will sell millions of these and ingen will in engineer them so that these pet dinosaurs can only eat ingen pet food jesus somebody said Exactly, Dachshund said. This is uh, Lewis Dachshund, by the way, from Biosyn, kind of presenting to his, uh, his own team about what he thinks InGen are up to. The zoo is the centerpiece of an enormous enterprise. You said these dinosaurs will be patented? Yes, genetically engineered animals can now be patented. The Supreme Court ruled on that in favour of Harvard in 1987. InGen will own its dinosaurs and no one else can legally make them. This is something that Crichton has returned to in, in later books. Um, the idea of patented individuals, patented animals, patented... Uh, which, as far as I know, uh, lab rats are patented. So the, the, their entire um, genome has been sequenced and is known. Uh, hope, um, call me up on that one if I'm wrong, folks. Get in touch. But uh, that that's what's come into my head. We then get the infamous sequence where Nedry meets uh, Dogson, which is, of course, the We Got Dogson here scene, which doesn't come from the book. And they meet in San Francisco Airport, not San Jose. And it, in the book, the famous Barbasol can is not Barbasol at all, but Gillette Foamy. Incidentally, when I was a kid, I presumed Barbasol was just some made-up brand because, number one, it's a dumb name and sounds fake. And number two... It doesn't exist in Europe. And number three, I didn't really understand about product placement. So I always thought that products I saw in films that I didn't recognize were just made up because um, products didn't particularly want to be named in real products didn't want to be named in film. But of course, that is not how this works at all. We then uh, get the main characters kind of getting together for their trip to the island. So we've got Grant and Sattler and Hammond and the lawyer, Gennaro, and then Ian Malcolm comes in, who we've said is is a kind of Crichton's mouthpiece, and he immediately just like knows that the park is doomed and starts talking about chaos theory, which I don't want to say too much about, just primarily because Crichton's ideas about it are a little bit dated, and chaos theory does state what everybody thinks it does, who knows it from the film, which is that you know large complex systems are inherently unstable. That is part of it, but uh, like the main part of it is about how actually there are underlying order orders and um and structures within complex systems but he doesn't really doesn't really like talking about that so much because it doesn't fit into what he wants to say in jurassic park 
as they approach the island, the, we get a little bit more lore about it, which is cool. So it's Isla Nublar, um, which is just Cloud Island. Uh, site B, as we'll eventually um, know it, is, is of course uh, Isla Sorna, Isla Sorna. The island is eight miles by three and um, mostly rainforest, as we see in the, in the film, but uh, deciduous vegetation high up where they first land in, in their helicopter. Just worth noting that in the, in the Last World film, Site B is is shown to be far more deciduous looking and less tropical, but I guess that's just... I don't think that was deliberate. I think that's just where they had to film it, where they chose to film it, which is probably somewhere in the west west coast of California or somewhere like that, where they have those deciduous rainforests. We get the opening scene with the Brachiosaur and um, the lawyer saying, oh, we're going to make a fortune here. Except it's not a Brachiosaurus, it's an Apatosaurus. Uh, which is more commonly known as a brontosaurus. I mentioned this in the King Kong episode that I felt Peter Jackson in that film was using a brontosaurus deliberately as a kind of a throwback to, you know, he it's kind of dinosaur you read about when you're a kid. It's it's that using the name brontosaurus is a deliberate old-fashioned throwback. Uh, so I was surprised to find Crichton putting it in here when in every other regard he's he's deliberately trying to use up-to-date science and uh, using dinosaurs that were not super well-known at the time, Velociraptor and Deinonychus were not as well-known as, as your Brachiosaurus or your, your Apatosaurus and your Tyrannosaurus and stuff like that. We then get a scene that has always puzzled me in the film, which is when Sattler, you know, they're driving in the Jeep through the jungle and Sattler pulls over um, a, a leaf and she says, oh, this has been extinct since the Cretaceous. Just because, like, nothing we learn eventually about how they bring the dinosaurs back to life makes it easy to explain how they might also do the same thing with, with plants. I mean, the whole shtick with the mosquitoes doesn't seem to hold true there. In the book, they kind of skirt over this because they mention the full scientific name of the plant, Serena veriformans, and they state that it's, it's, it is ancient, but it still does exist in, in certain parts of Brazil. So it's not an extinct plant in the book the way it is in the film. We get a nice scene where they first arrive at the visitor center, <clears throat> which is, of course, the sort of thatched roof structure that we see in the film. And um, there's some nice tension build up, some foreshadowing when they notice that there were all these bars stuck onto the windows that weren't on the, the schematics that they earlier saw, implying that somewhere in between, you know, somebody got scared or something went wrong and they decided to beef up the security. Interestingly, the large skeleton in the foyer of the building is not a skeleton T-Rex like it is in the film, but a robot T-Rex. And Malcolm immediately starts telling people that, yep, the animals have escaped. They've already got off this island. There's no question about it. Grant suspects this already because he's been sent a piece of a body, um, or at least a fax of a piece of body, from one of the Campsonatus that seems to have gotten off the island. But he's not convinced. I mean, he's still sort of hedging his bets about that one, whereas insufferable Malcolm is like, yeah, no, it's doomed. Don't even try to build something like this. You're, you're already doomed. And then we, we meet Wu, Henry Wu, and he gets a way more in-depth treatment than he does in the film, which is cool. And, well, let, let's get started. Let's see if you agree with the idea that um, Malcolm is trying to cast him as being a kind of an arrogant, thoughtless scientist. So Nedry turned back to the group as Grant asked, and once the computer has analysed the DNA, how do you know what animal it encodes? We have two procedures, Wu said. The first is phylogenetic mapping. DNA evolves over time like everything else in an organism, hands or feet or any other physical attribute. 
so we can take an unknown piece of DNA and determine, roughly by computer, where it fits in the evolutionary sequence. It's time-consuming, but it can be done. And the other way? Wu shrugged. Just grow it and find out what it is, he said. That's what we usually do. And it, I, I don't know, I suppose you could you could argue that he's being a bit careless here, but I mean, it makes sense. Uh, he, he he gets a lot of time to justify himself, I think, and, and we'll, we'll get more of that as the episode goes on. He, he, there's a lot of ways in which he might seem sloppy on the surface because he doesn't care how many animals they have or what they're called. But usually that is because, like, the, these, those are not real delineations that mean anything to him because he's looking at it from, he has, he's had to create these things from DNA and it's true that you don't know what they're going to be until they grow and it's true that there's no meaningful definition between one and the other when you come when it comes to these tiny little tweaks of dna that doesn't mean that for sure that you have one species and not two but then the whole concept of species in in zoology is, is complicated and fluid and you have what are called lumpers who who want to this is in in real real life contemporary zoology you have lumpers who tend to say that you know these animals are probably one just slight variations of one species and then you have splitters who tend to prefer to say no we think these are separate species and it is a little bit up in the air sometimes and I find his I feel almost like he's being cautious rather than uh, careless but that's me yeah there's some wonderful stuff here um when they're being shown around the facility before the tour of the park that isn't in the film at all so uh, after the the egg laying sequence where they meet Dr. Wu they go to a sort of a, an animal nursery and they meet a very young velociraptor and again it's a little bit spooky and there's some foreshadowing and the animal is very small and very young and harmless but they get to see that it's smart, that it's fast and that one day it's going to be maybe a threat or a danger. And then we get a little bit more from Wu where he says Walking back towards the control room Malcolm said I have one more question Dr. Wu how many different species have you made so far? Well, I'm not exactly sure, Wu said. I believe the number at the moment is 15. 15 species. You don't know for sure, Malcolm said. Wu smiled. I stopped counting, he said, after the first dozen. And you have to realise that sometimes we think we have an animal correctly made, from the standpoint of the DNA, which is our basic work, and the animal grows for six months and then something untoward happens, and we realise there is some error. A releaser gene isn't operating, a hormone not being released or some other problem in the developmental sequence. So we have to go back to the drawing board with an animal, so to speak. He smiled. At one time, I thought we had more than 20 species, but now only 15. I don't really think that Malcolm's uh, scepticism here is really is really warranted. I think Wu has come to his conclusion about being cautious about naming and counting species is, is born out of experience and not carelessness we learn a lot of details that actually did make their way into the film like all the redundant systems the fact that all the animals are female the the famous lysine contingency but we do get some extra stuff that's not in the film so there's a, a kind of a chilling moment when we find out that the types of animals are numbered the way software is so they're currently at version 4.4 with most of the animals in the park and this is like supposed to be a kind of a horrifying science fiction moment it's like oh my days uh you know, living things are being treated like <clears throat> like software. And absolutely, there's a dehumanizing, if that's not the right word, a, 
you know, a, a devaluing of living things by thinking about them that way. On the other hand, it's entirely practical. They are almost like software. We've already mentioned they're they're patented. They're owned by the company. They have defaults. They have to that have to be changed. Um, so it's it's a little heartless, but sort of practical at the same time. And then we get a scene with Wu and Hammond in his bungalow. So one thing that I th- always liked in the book when I was a kid that didn't make it into the film is somewhere on the island, away from the the, the labs and everything, Hammond has a beautiful sort of a rustic cabin. And, I, you know, I always imagine it as being sort of done out in like cheesy tiki style, you know, South Seas style. And he eats fine food and he's got these big windows where he looks out onto the park. And he, this is where he has his most philosophical conversations with Henry Wu. And there's some really interesting stuff here that was eventually used to an extent in, in Jurassic World. So have a listen and see what you think. They're having an argument about the, the nature of the dinosaurs. And the dinosaurs we have now are real, Wu said, pointing to the screens around the room. But in certain ways, they are unsatisfactory, unconvincing. I could make them better. Hammond says, better in what way? For one thing, they move too fast, Henry Wu said. People aren't accustomed to seeing large animals that are so quick. I'm afraid visitors will think the dinosaurs look speeded up like film running too fast. But Henry, these are real dinosaurs. You said so yourself. I know, Wu said, but we could easily breed slower, more domesticated dinosaurs. Domesticated dinosaurs, Hammond snorted. Nobody wants domesticated dinosaurs, Henry. They want the real thing. But that's my point, Wu said. I don't think they do. They want to see their expectation, which is quite different. Hammond was frowning. You said yourself, John, this park is entertainment. And entertainment has nothing to do with reality. Entertainment is antithetical to reality. And then a little bit later... um, Wu says that he can make the animals, quote, better than real. Why not? After all, these animals are already modified. We've inserted genes to make them patentable and to make them lysine-dependent, and we've done everything we can to promote growth and accelerate development into adulthood. Hammond shrugged. But that was inevitable. We didn't want to wait. We have investors to consider. Of course. But I'm just saying, why stop there? Why not push ahead to make exactly the kind of dinosaur that we'd like to see? one that is more acceptable to visitors and one that is easier for us to handle. A slower, more docile version for the park. Hammond frowned. But then the dinosaurs wouldn't be real. But they're not real now, Wu said. That's what I'm trying to tell you. There isn't any reality here. So I've always found this discussion fascinating, not least because of the the, the real-life issues with with de-extinction which are i mentioned earlier you know you can tweak a contemporary animal to make it look prehistoric does, does that make it prehistoric um but within the the fiction of jurassic park you've got these yeah it they're not real dinosaurs you know they're these kind of fictional made-up frankenstein monsters uh, and i kind of tend to side with woo here that like once you start tink- tinkering with them in all these ways you've already you know, you're compromised. You're so compromised that there's no such thing as authentic. There's no such thing as real. You might as well just do whatever works because Hammond is is kind of pushing to to make the changes only as much as absolutely need. Later on, he says, we've made the changes that were forced upon us by practicality. 
don't make any more. And I feel like there's no meaningful line in the sand you can draw there. I mean, some of the changes they've made are so that they grow faster, so they can get the park online in time to make, you know, to cash in on their investors. So these are not just practical or biological limitations that are forcing them to make these changes. They're economic. You know, ecology doesn't care about economy. That's bullshit. There's no meaningful way in which you can say one animal is a real prehistoric velociraptor and the other one is a a made-up, you know, fictional hybrid thing. And... A tiny little bit of this debate makes its way into Jurassic World. And Jurassic World isn't a very satisfying film in many ways, but there is a germ of that interesting idea in there. I don't think it gets used properly, but more is done with Henry Wu in the films than in the er- well, in the later films than the early ones. And it's just interesting to me that even that late in the series, when so much had changed, they were still dipping back into this book occasionally for a few little points um, of reference and and that's kind of cool as well i have to say once again is Crichton criticizing science here or or corporate greed i really i really find it hard to tell he occasionally comes flat out and criticizes science but i don't really feel like he's making his case strongly enough to separate the two and um as, as i laid out at the beginning you know the the reasons why scientists are want to attach themselves to let's say, corporate or commercial interests, unfortunately, is just the nature of the world that we're in and the the lack of stability there is in, you know, quote-unquote ivory tower academia uh, as uh, that particular um, lifestyle or, or career path has been utterly, utterly undermined. And there's a quote here that kind of goes off of that idea because Hammond goes on a rant about the place of universities and research in, in the modern world. He says... Let's face facts. Universities are no longer the intellectual centres of the country. The very idea is preposterous. Universities are the backwater. Don't look so surprised. I'm not saying anything you don't know. Since World War II, all the really important discoveries succumb out of private laboratories. The laser, the transistor, the polio vaccine, the microchip, the hologram, the personal computer, magnetic resonance imaging, CAT scans, the list goes on. Universities simply aren't where it's happening anymore, and they haven't been for 40 years. If you want to do something important in computers or genetics, you don't go to a university. Dear me, no. Why? What must you go through to start a new project? How many grant applications? How many forms? How many approvals? The steering committee, the department chairman, the university resources committee. Uh, Life is too short and DNA too long. You want to make your mark. If you want to get something done, stay out of universities. I'm talking about work, real accomplishment. What does a scientist need to work? He needs time and he needs money. I'm talking about giving you a five-year commitment and $10 million a year in funding. $50 million and no one tells you how to spend it. You decide. Everyone else just gets out of your way. Yeah, so again, I don't mind this and I think it's it's probably basically true. But Crichton's takeaway from it is, is that science is somehow has somehow become inherently corrupt or has no spine or no backbone, when in fact it appears to me from the inside um, that it just has simply become a victim of larger economic changes and the undermining of the ability of universities to do these things. Not that universities haven't played their own role in their destruction, but I would say that a lot of that has come from their insistence in recent years on seeing themselves as just another type of business that has to turn a profit and has to answer to 
not shareholders exactly, but they certainly seem to behave as if they do. But that is by the by. Oh, interestingly, another bit of world building here that I don't know if it ever gets made explicitly clear in, in, the, in the film. But if you've ever wondered, like canonically, what are the animals and how many animals are in Jurassic Park? So there's 15. And the list is helpfully printed out here, uh, along with uh, which version they are. So we've got two Tyrannosaurs, so that's an adult and a juvenile. We have 21 Myosaurs. Those are duck-billed dinosaurs, like hadrosaurs. Uh, the name means good mother lizard. And uh, in, the, in the fiction of Jurassic Park, Alan Grant himself is one of the leading sort of discoverers of their kind of matriarchal society and their... their um, the fact that they look after their own eggs, which was, of course, a, a big deal. It was a very new idea in research at the time. There are four stegosaurs. There are eight triceratops. There are 49 procampsonathids. There are 16 othnelia, who are kind of smallish um, uh, theropods, if I remember. There are eight velociraptors. That's what they think, anyway. There are 17 apatosaurs, who are brontosaurs. 11 hadrosaurs which are more duck-billed dinosaurs, seven dilophosaurs, who are the spitters from the film, there are six pterosaurs, 33 hypsilophodontids, hypsilophodons, I know them as, those are also small uh, herbivorous, I think, um, uh, theropods. There are 16 euoplosophalids, which are like a type of ankylosaurs, uh, four-legged um, quadrupedal armoured dinosaurs, 18 styracosaurs, which are kind of like triceratops, but with more spikes on the frill, and uh, 22 microceratops. So, pretty cool. Um, I mean, neither neither the book series nor the film series is entirely... Uh, it, like, neither of them have a hard and fast list of animals they actually stick to. So, uh, in, in the Lost World novel, which is the direct sequel to this, there were not ceratosaurs, but carnotosaurs or something like that, which are not mentioned here. So, either that's because... There were more dinosaurs in Site B that never made it to the park or whatever. I don't know, but, they, you know, nobody has ever been too fussy about this and uh, they tend to pull new dinosaurs out of nowhere whenever they want to for the story. I mean, where does Spinosaurus come from, you know, in, in, in Jurassic Park 3? Who knows? Uh, and, and again, the, the chronology and the canonicity between the book series and the film series is, is a little wavy. And even on our bonus episode this week, we're going to be talking about Jurassic Park Trespasser, and that has a whole load more um, backstory and lore. And one of the cool things about it is that it takes a bunch of stuff from the book series and applies it to the film universe, even as much as taking the 1989 timeline and using that too. So, you know, there's a, like a retcon that, according to Jurassic Park Trespasser, what happens in the first JP movie is happening in 1989, not 1993, which I think is then rendered uncanon by later developments, but... That's more than we can get into here. So we then get the, the beginning of the tour and the guys take off in the vehicles. In the film, you may remember they are Ford Explorers, gorgeously painted in that lovely, iconic sort of jungle camo. In the book, they are to Toyota Land Cruisers. I mean, Toyotas are and were common cars in the US uh, at the time. I wonder if there's just a touch of that, like, Japanese taking over the world thing going on here. And just like in the film, uh, no expense has been spared and the dinosaur kind of pre-recorded information has all been done by Richard Kiley. Spared no expense. We're introduced to Arnold, who is called John Arnold, not Ray Arnold. 
And he has an, uh, he's got some good dialogue here. Pretty much every character who's minor in the film gets a lot more to do and say uh, in the book, which is another thing that's kind of fun. I like this little bit where he's ranting. So John Arnold, if you don't remember, is Samuel L. Jackson's character in the film. He's like running Jurassic Park from the, the, the main control room. And he's he has a great bit where he's complaining about all the problems they have in the park. And it really brings home the the complication of running something is something like this. You've got these animals that have never been seen before on Earth uh, by humans. And now you're trying to control them, keep them safe, keep your, you know, your visitors safe. And then you've got, as he says himself in the film, you've got all the major problems of a major zoo and a major theme park. Oh, it's not as bad as all that, Hammond said. Yes, it is. You're just not here to see it, Arnold said. The Tyrannosaurs drink the lagoon water and sometimes get sick. We're not sure why. The Triceratops females kill each other in fights for dominance and have to be separated into groups smaller than six. We don't know why. The Stegosaurs frequently get blisters on their tongues and diarrhea for reasons no one yet understands, even though we've lost two. Hypsilophodonts get skin rashes. And the Velociraptors... Let's not start on the Velociraptors, Hammond said. I'm sick of hearing about the Velociraptors. How they are the most vicious creatures anyone has ever seen. They are, Muldoon said in a low voice. They should all be destroyed. So yeah, again, you can see how some of this dialogue made its way into the film, but was kind of cleaned up and tidied up a little bit and made a little bit sharper, which I guess is what happens when you have many different people working on different drafts, as was the case. Mm. Although thinking about Hollywood, not not always. It, it doesn't always improve things. But I just like all this kind of peek into the the frustrations of running something as complicated as this. Incidentally, none of this stuff ever gets figured out. It's just there to remind you big systems are complicated, ecology is complicated, natural systems are complicated. You know, we're, we, we kind of have this idea and science has this idea that if we understand all of the parameters, we can predict things. And that's not the case. And that is basically what Hammond says constantly when he's referring to chaos theory. Yes, that's true and I agree with it. I disagree with the idea that therefore you shouldn't even try anything ever because you don't know how it's going to be. And that's the, the sort of Frankenstein fallacy that I think Crichton is pushing home here. And, uh, you know, occasionally, uh, even though he does love science and he brings in as much interesting scientific stuff in there and, and makes it cool, you know, occasionally the mask slips. Anyway, one of the things that happens towards the beginning while they're on the tour is... Um, Tim sees what he thinks is a raptor outside of the raptor area, just making its way to the park. <clears throat> Grant, much earlier on in, than in the film, Grant finds eggshells and proposes that the somehow the raptors are are multiplying and uh, and reproducing. And it even goes as far as one of the kids using binoculars uh, sees a boat heading away from the island and thinks they see uh, a raptor on the top of the ship. So. From very early on in the story, it's clear that things are out of hand, bad stuff is happening. And again, this was all stuff that didn't make it into the film. And of course, Ham or not Hammond, Malcolm has something to say about this and he, he he's quite insufferable about it. But this is where the, 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 the famous life finds a way bit from the film. This is where that originally comes from. So he says, broadly speaking, the ability of the park to control the spread of life forms because the history of evolution is that life escapes all barriers, life breaks free, life expands to new territories, painfully, perhaps even dangerously, but life finds a way. Malcolm shook his head. I don't mean to be philosophical, but there it is. 
We then get a, a really memorable scene. This always, I always liked this when I was a, a kid. Um, the, some of the folks who are in the control room um, are being lectured by Arnold about how the, how, how, you know, how, how tight their security is and how they know where all the animals are at any point in time by using these motion, cap, motion sensors. And he brings up a, a, a database of each animal. We've already been through some of that and some of the numbers. And uh, Malcolm does this thing where he, he gets them to go for increased numbers. And when he looks for increased numbers of animals, they start to show up. And then you get this scene where he's like, oh, we, well, it never occurred to us that there would be more animals than we expected. We, you know, the program was was programmed to look out for if there were fewer. And like, it's a cool scene. But looking at it now, this is a bit lame in terms of, oh, this proves what Malcolm always said, that this system is inherently unstable. Well, I don't think, like, just because it's badly done or it's incompetent doesn't mean that it's somehow inherently unstable. Like, some of the way, like, Crichton kind of cheats here by firstly setting up his stall to say, you know, a system like this park is literally and philosophically impossible to run. But then the reason it, it goes tits up is, pardon my French, is because of a bunch of bad decisions and sort of happenstance. Like, that that's a really dumb way to run your computer program. They hire Dennis Nedry, who's clearly disgruntled and don't pay him properly. And uh, sure enough, he goes over to Biosyn and, you know, sells you out. And uh, you have a storm coming in to disrupt your park. Well, you built your park, you know, in, in, in a tornado zone. You know, you have to be, your park has to be able to deal with these, these weather systems coming through once in a while. And uh, it's only bad luck that all these things uh, come to fruition, perhaps at the same time. But this whole idea that, well can't learn any lessons can't do it better next time it's just inherently wrong really doesn't hold water given the specifics of the ways in which Crichton has things unravel oh yeah so it turns out there's actually 37 raptors on the island which again it, it's hard to imagine that nobody would have noticed this but it, it turns out that they rarely go out into the park so the vet Harding goes out sometimes but only if there's a problem everybody else seems to just like stay in the control room um, and all of the feeding is automated and stuff like that. We then get a, a lovely speech from Hammond, just telling us really how utterly greedy he is, what, a, what an absolute greed bag he is. He says, uh, uh, this is him talking to Henry Wu once again, he goes, if you were going to start a bioengineering company, Henry, what would you do? Would you make products to help mankind to fight disease and illness? Dear me, no, that's a terrible idea. You, you remember the original genetic engineering companies like Genentech were all started to make pharmaceuticals. New drugs for mankind. Noble purpose. Unfortunately, drugs face all kinds of barriers. FDA testing alone takes five to eight years if you're lucky. Even worse, there are forces at work in the marketplace. Suppose you made a miracle drug for cancer or heart disease. Suppose you now want to charge $1,000 or $2,000 a dose. You might imagine that is your privilege. After all, you invented the drug. You pay to develop and test it. You should be able to charge whatever you wish. But do you really think the government will let you do that? No, Henry, they will not. Sick people aren't going to pay $1,000 a dose for needed medication. They won't be grateful. They'll be outraged. Now, think how different it is when you're making entertainment. Nobody needs entertainment. That's not a matter for government intervention. If I charge $5,000 a day for my park, who's going to stop me? After all, nobody needs to come here. And far from being highway robbery, a costly price tag actually increases the appeal of the park. A visit becomes a status symbol. 
and all Americans love that. So do the Japanese, and of course, they have far more money. There's those uh, Japanese again. So, yeah, again, I don't know if things were different in 1991, but Hammond seems to be counting on a uh, a far uh, more intrusive and uh, a far more intrusive amount of government control over what uh, medical companies do than I think we are seeing today. We also get this nice nugget of lore. Uh, Hammond says, "We have already leased a large tract in the Azores for Jurassic Park Europe, and you know we long ago obtained an island near Guam." for Jurassic Park Japan. Construction on the next two Jurassic Parks will begin early next year. They will all be open within four years. At that time, direct revenues will exceed $10 billion a year, and merchandising, television, and ancillary rights should double that. I see no reason to bother with children's pets, which I'm told Lou Dogson thinks we're planning to make. Again, like Crichton keeps making Hammond out to be pretty much the archetypal, like, evil, money-grubbing capitalist, and then somehow you know, points the finger at science as if they're the problem. And it's weird. I, I, I feel like the what he's saying and uh, and what he's, what he's extracting from it don't really add up, but that could just be me. Um, again, we get, we get more of this kind of dichotomy between making children happy and uh, making money, which, as I said, is a contradiction that just barely makes it into the film through Spielberg's filter of, you know, John Hammond is just a good, good old guy who wants to make kids happy. One thing that happens, and I'm skipping over the the sort of pulpy narrative that happens here. So once the guys are in the park, <clears throat> you know, the Nedry, Nedry uh, kills the power and uh, tries to make it out with the embryos. And um, basically dinosaurs escape and Grant and the kids have adventures in the park. I'm skipping over most of that. It's more or less, the beats happen more or less as they do in the film. There's a bit longer, they're a bit longer and there's more of them. But I'm kind of sticking to stuff that we didn't see in the film just to give you an idea of the interesting expanded world of Jurassic Park in the film, or in, in the book, rather. One thing that happens in the film that doesn't, or in the book that's not really extrapolated in the film is that towards the end, they almost get the park back online again. They, at kind of like the two-thirds mark, they think that everything's okay. The power's back. Most of the animals haven't left their pens. Um, and it turns out that the only thing they really have to do is get the Rex back where she belongs and it turns out that they have no weapons um, to do this on the whole island because of some puritanical streak that John Hammond had which again is like is, is a bit dumb and this is not the park failing because of some you know god god given uh, barrier that they've broken in things man was not meant to know this is just bad planning uh, one thing we do get that's cool is a scene where Grant and the kids um, they're being pursued by the Rex constantly, like even more than they are in the film. But they make it to what's called an aviary. And uh, that's a place where the, the pterodactyls are. And actually they're reported to be a type of sierodactyl, which is a some sort of like a fish-eating winged uh, pterodactyl type animal, which is about five or six meters across in its wingspan. And this scene is short, but it's cool. And uh, just interesting to note that actually this scene did make it into Jurassic Park 3. So there's a scene fairly like this, which eventually was used in that film. Again, not an amazing film, but uh, that scene is, is kind of memorable. We're, we're starting to get to the point now where Mal Malcolm has been injured by the T-Rex and is back at control and he's on morphine and he's ranting and he's giving all of his philosophical bits. And this again happens, happens directly in the film, just uh, just a whole lot more and I really like this stuff when I was a kid but 
some of the kind of rottenness of the attitude towards science now rose me the wrong way. Not necessarily that I disagree with what he's saying, just that I take a different message from it. So he says, I'll tell you the problem with engineers and scientists. Scientists have an elaborate line of bullshit about how they are seeking to know the truth about nature, which is true, but that's not what drives them. Nobody is driven by abstractions like seeking truth. Scientists are actually preoccupied with accomplishment, so they are focused on whether they can do something. They never stop to ask if they should do something. They conveniently define such considerations as pointless. If they don't do it, some someone else will. So, I mean, what can I say here except follow the money, man? It's money, money, money. If things happen that shouldn't happen, it's because they're profitable. You know, anybody... If you, if you gave a scientist a, a living wage just to do pure, you know, blue sky uh, research for the sake of pure knowledge and um, they knew that they could do this without their career being in trouble, they knew that they could, you know, get their house and their mortgage and their 2.5 kids by doing this kind of imaginary, honest, uh, you know, non-contaminated, non-compromised non research. Yeah, I think a whole bunch of them would do it, especially in today's climate. He then goes on to talk to Ellie Sattler and um, she says, don't you think you're overstating? And he says, what does one of your excavations look like a year later? Pretty bad, she admitted. You don't replant, you don't restore the land after you dig. No, why not? She shrugged. There's no money, I guess. There's only money enough to dig, but not to repair. Well, when we're working in the Badlands, just the Badlands, Malcolm said, shaking his head. Just trash, just byproducts, just side effects. I'm trying to tell you that scientists want it this way. They want byproducts and trash and scars and side effects. It's a way of reassuring themselves. It's built into the fabric of science and it's increasingly a disaster. Oh, folks, I, I, I don't know what to say here. Ellie's giving it to him straight. She's saying we get paid to do certain things and there's no money for cleanup because nobody wants to pay for cleanup. That's an economic problem. You know, this is, uh, he, he's attributing these insane, evil, cackling, mad scientists' motivations to, to the scientists. Oh, they just want to do this, like, as part of some kind of crazy ego-stroking exercise. They want to destroy things. And here's here's the really bad part. If, if you get the feeling that maybe he's seeking into some kind of environmentalism because he's concerned that they're, like, trashing the badlands uh, or that they're they're doing what they need to do and not cleaning up after them and that this is somehow bad for for the environment and and maybe he's going somewhere decent with this, well, I've got, a ba I've got bad news for you. And uh, we are now approaching, as much as I love Jurassic Park and as much as I love Michael Crichton, we are getting closer and approaching the rotten beating heart at the centre of his weird corrupt ideas about science. Before that, uh, we cut back to Grant and the kids still on the run from the T-Rex. We get a scene where they're hiding from the T-Rex behind a waterfall, which you might recognise does get used in Jurassic Park The Lost World. One thing that I don't think, don't remember from the film, is that the T-Rex has an almost prehensile tongue, which is like absurdly long and is able to like go around corners and, you know, caress them and almost wrap itself around people's heads and stuff like that we then get more like examples of flat out bad planning from the jp team where they think that everything is almost up and running when they suddenly realize that oh sh actually when we turned the power back on it wasn't running from the main power it was running from auxiliary power and everything's just about to cut out which again you know just because just because they planned it badly and because Crichton needs things to fail so that malcolm can be correct 
and um, we get a little bit more with Muldoon I haven't said much about him he honestly doesn't get a whole lot more characterization than he does in the film he's the he's the sort of African white hunter if you remember the guy who goes clever girl and he he gives us a, a kind of a cool bit of uh, trivia here about the dinosaurs he says they're actually particularly difficult to kill because they have distributed nervous systems that means that you know not all of them have a primary single brain where most of their nervous system is centralized they have as we know some dinosaurs probably did they have different kind of ganglions kind of nerve centers distributed throughout the bodies and that therefore even a you know a shotgun blast to the head won't necessarily take them out he says they have to be literally blown apart and he gives a bunch of other kind of it's fictional but it's interesting reasons why the dinosaurs are particularly tough again this only really works because you're in this artificial scenario where they're on an island without any like serious weapons so malcolm goes on another rant about science he do, he does his famous thing about how scientific power is like in inherited wealth and that they didn't earn it and he gives the, the famous speech about how you know a somebody who learns martial arts by the time they've gone through all the years of training they already have the discipline that they need to not use it um, in the wrong way and he says scientific power is different because you can buy into it you, you stand on the shoulders of giants and do the next thing he says you can wield incredible power without the without the experience and without the discipline uh, which tells you how to use it and yes and I'm, I'm yes and no on this i i fundamentally believe that science is a tool and nothing more science as as malcolm points out himself and i i agree you know science can can show you how to make a bomb but can't tell you not to use it and i think anyone looking for more than that in science is is barking up the wrong tree science is a tool and uh, science is not a system of morality and operating with science alone can only get you so far it needs to be utilized within some other kind of worldview you have to you have to fundamentally believe that there's some reason why you shouldn't use an atom bomb to kill people you know you need to uh, science can tell you how to make dinosaurs in the world of jurassic park but it can't tell you that you know utilizing them for entertainment purposes alone is is the only way to do this or like the dinosaurs are only worthwhile to be used in a uh, uh, in a money-making way and if you don't have some kind of worldview whether it be philosophical religious or, or otherwise you need something beyond the science to tell you whether or not you should do this or how you should do it and unfortunately we live in a world where i would say the primary impetus besides scientific knowledge is is economic and Crichton himself said that his imp his impetus for writing this book was his interest in the economics behind science and he came to the conclusion that entertainment would be the only way to fund something as absurdly expensive as this scientific project and i think it's it's not until you you, you address that issue that you're going to get to the problem at the heart of this book and and Crichton's constant turning on scientists personally as being responsible for this is is quite beyond me i look at this information i see a problem too and uh, i see the source of this problem in coming from a completely different place as he comes to the end of his, his basically he's dying malcolm is dying and uh, he do, he is brought back in the sequel but it's it's it is a retcon it's made very clear in this book that he's supposed to be on the way out and there's all sorts of um sort of for, foreshadowing for this 
But he basically talks about how <clears throat> the human race and our philosophies go through paradigms and we change our ideas. And he says that, you know, Dar the advent of Darwin's ideas forced a paradigm. Um, you know, quantum physics forced a paradigm. He now thinks that science itself is, is, is kind of reaching the end of its high period. It's reaching the end of its, its relevance and that something else will come along afterwards. And Sattler says to him, well, okay, what is going to come along next? And... And then Crichton kind of cheats us by having Malcolm say, you know, you can never tell until you're on the other side. And then he passes out and potentially dies. One thing I want to mention is, I think there's some truth to this. I think the high point for like public interest and public respect for science was probably in the 1950s and 60s, when you can tell from the literature, you can tell from the, the fantastic fiction and the the prognostications that, you know, the 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 famous shiny mid-20th century future that people imagined was around the corner and, and science was going to make everything better and um, it was this kind of fundamentally good and positive thing. I think we've we've passed that high point. I think we're unfortunately now in a period where science is viewed with a lot more skepticism um, and, and I guess that could be good in certain ways. I think it's not good to idolise anything or be uncritical about anything but where I differ from Crichton is I, I think this is fundamentally not a good thing because we're not replacing our respect for science with a respect for anything better. We're we're we have a we're making a return to a fundamental irrationality and I th I think the rumblings of this could have been seen maybe in the twenty in the two thousands and twenty tens with um sort of return of fundam religious fundamentalism in certain parts of the world which was a, a force that had been dormant for for about 50 years i would say maybe maybe even more and I, I if you look at the geopolitics of 50 years ago nobody would have predicted something like this i would say more recently this has manifested itself in the west with a, a deliberate camp deliberate campaigns towards uh, engendering distrust of science as any kind of authority and uh, if you want to look for examples of that, you can return to the stuff I mentioned right at the beginning about climate denial as perhaps one of the most successful um, manufacturing of a, a fake controversy to undermine um, the very notion of the, of the scientific process. So, yeah, uh, Malcolm is onto something here, but he thinks it's a sort of like natural process, which is somehow going to lead to something maybe better and more positive. And uh, unfortunately, I would have to say that the evidence is uh, leading me to a different conclusion. Shortly after this, everything in the park uh, begins to fall apart. A lot of our main characters um, reach the heights of their various character arcs. Those which are greedy or vain uh, become more greedy or vain just as they are eaten. Henry Wu himself uh, points out uh, as he's looking out the window of the laboratory that... You know, he never could predict the behavior of these animals and he didn't really care that he couldn't because uh, that wasn't his job. His job was looking after the DNA and how they, how they, you know, that, that he could create these creatures safely and bring them to term. And he said, look, there was no way we were going to be able to predict the behavior. That was secondary. That's not our job. Uh, and at the very last moment, he says, well, even though we, we have no idea of ever knowing whether their behavior is quote unquote prehistorically accurate, well, you know, the fact that they're now uh, interacting and breeding in the island, even though it represents a logistical mess up on our end, he's kind of proud. It kind of proves that he made living functional animals 
And those are his last thoughts as the Velociraptors break in and get him finally. We have a wonderful scene that never happens in the film where Grant is making his way back through the the sort of dinosaur factory and uh, makes his way into the hatchery and is cornered by a number of velociraptors and comes up with this kind of weird way of taking them out where he's injecting eggs from the hatchery with some kind of glowing like poisonous chemical and rolls the eggs down towards the velociraptors and they eat them and and, and die and uh, kind of in his last moments we cut back to Malcolm so I said he died but he doesn't he's still he's still going he's almost dead and remember I said that maybe he was heading for a it sounded like he was heading for a kind of environmental point at the very end. Well, we get we get this scene. And even as a kid, this troubled me, I must say. On his last breath, he's arguing with Hammond. And uh, Hammond says, The planet, most people believe the planet is in jeopardy. All the experts agree that our planet is in trouble. <clears throat> and uh, Malcolm decides to say, Let me tell you about our planet. It is four and a half billion years old. There has been life on this planet for nearly that long. 3.8 billion years. The first bacteria. And later the first multicellular animals. He goes on and on about the millions of years and all the comings and goings of all the great animals. Even today the greatest geographical feature on the planet comes from two great continents colliding, buck buckling to make the Himalayan mountain range over millions of years. The planet has survived everything in its time. It will certainly survive us. Hammond frowned. Just because it lasted a long time doesn't mean it's permanent. If there was a radiation accident... Suppose there was, Malcolm said. Let's say we had a bad one, and all the plants and animals died, and the earth was clicking hot for a hundred thousand years. Life would survive somewhere, under the soil, or perhaps frozen in Arctic ice. And after all those years, when the planet was no longer inhospitable, life would again spread over the planet. The evolutionary process would begin again. Uh, so... There's a bit then when I think Hammond says, So what are you saying? We shouldn't care about the environment? No, of course not. Malcolm coughed. Let's be clear. The planet is not in jeopardy. We are in jeopardy. We haven't got the power to destroy the planet or to save it. But we might have the power to save ourselves. And this is something that has been said to me in person by actual climate deniers, which is, oh, environmentalists think that we're going to destroy the earth and we literally can't do that. And it's like, yeah, we probably can't literally destroy the Earth, but isn't it bad enough that we're going? We are creating um, this this extinction event faster and greater than any of the historical ones. You know, I I don't I don't know what the point of this is. Nobody is literally no environmentalist is out there saying we are literally destroying the Earth. People sometimes use that kind of language when they're being a little bit sloppy or uncautious, and I I don't approve of that because I think it's unhelpful, but. I mean, talk about constructing a straw man. What what I think Crichton is really doing here is he is so utterly convinced that scientists are hubristic um, and, and arrogant. And he's saying the ultimate arrogance is to think that, you know, our effect on the earth it, it could be so great. And I wish I could agree with him. It would make me a lot happier. It would make me a lot more relaxed. But the evidence is not there. The evidence is saying we are having an enormous effect. And I find this sort of uh, sidelining of it just to say, oh, hey man, take the take the geological view. Everything's going to be fine. Yeah, it is. Um, you know, we could wipe out 95% of things uh, and we're on track to. And, you know, in enough million years, other things will come back and we'll be gone and it won't matter. 
And is that to say that we, we have no responsibility? There's a huge difference between arrogance and responsibility. And whether or not we're displaying the former, we desperately, desperately need to be upping our game when it comes to the latter. <sighs> okay, I'll get down off the soapbox. As the book comes to an end, we find out that uh, most of the animals have escaped from their pens and are running around and approaching what somebody calls a Jurassic Equilibrium. Because uh, you've got, you know, herbivores being attacked by carnivores. You've got animals interacting in ecologically complex ways. Which is kind of funny because this is still way artificial. These are all animals from completely different time periods, from different parts of the earth. Uh, and the idea of them all putting, you know, coming together into some kind of natural balance is, is kind of funny. Just because it's, uh, it's basically like taking a whole bunch of uh, invasive species and putting them in one place and letting them duke it out. It's even funnier in the films when they clearly make out like, uh, especially Site B is like this wonderful, you know, ecological paradise where all these animals are living together. I mean, thing is, you leave them there for long enough, they will approach some kind of equilibrium. That, I mean, yeah, that is true. We learn that uh, in in John Hammond's last moments, so yes, John Hammond gets taken out nastily, unlike in the unlike in the film, he's given a free pass in the film, but bad things happen to him in the book. Um, as he kind of wanders out of his his uh, bungalow into the jungle, he's planning his next park. And this, of course, is the ultimate crime for a, sci- a mad scientist in a Frankenstein story. How dare they think that they could try again and start again? He's, he lets us know that there are more dinosaur embryos being held in vaults at uh, InGen headquarters back at Palo Alto in California. And then he uh, trips over, falls down a slope and is torn apart by Campsonathus, which you might recognize as a scene that was done to a different character in the Lost World movie. After all of the main things are said and done, there's a brief sequence that doesn't happen in the film where Grant has to uh, track down the velociraptors who apparently have a nest underground. And when he's in there, he finds that they all run out of the nest and onto the beach and a ship is approaching and he comes to believe that the raptors are actually trying to get on the ship so that they can emigrate effectively. And it's treated as this big kind of scary moment. Oh, they're trying to get off the island. But I don't know. As smart as they are, like, how how would they understand what a boat is or where it would take them? Or I don't know. that Even as a kid, uh, this bit never worked for me, even though the sequence where he goes on, into the nest is, uh, is, is pretty cool. So that's where the book ends um, with... Grant and the others kind of hold up on the mainland in Costa Rica and it's implied that there are so many animals now that have escaped to the mainland and the Costa Rican government are so worried about this that while various court cases play out and while various uh, scientific investigations of these animals is underway they're not going anywhere so they're going to be stuck um, in Costa Rica for the foreseeable future and uh, it's, it's a nice scene and it's setting things up for the future Interestingly, it's a line that the sequel doesn't take. You probably know that Crichton wasn't really too hot on writing a sequel to this. He was kind of put up to it by Spielberg and uh, the the movie people who basically said, man, look how much money the first film made. Which has always been weird to me because the Lost World film takes very little from his book. He might as, They might as well not have pressured him to make it. But I guess he was such a big name at the time, they wanted to be able to uh, put his name in there. So that's it for this episode folks if you've made it this far i thank you very much and um, this episode has been more ranty and soapboxy than usual 
Uh, please remember, I still enjoy this book. Loads of stuff in it is great. Crichton is a fascinating writer. Um, just wanted to kind of bridge that gap between sort of state of fear era Crichton and go way back to his best work and just see whether or not some of those seeds were there. You may feel differently than I did. You may interpret it differently than I did. That's fine. world is big enough for all of us. And uh, I'm big enough and ugly enough to take my lumps. If you want to get in touch, as always, folks, reach out to us on Twitter, where we are at Strange Ireland, or Instagram, where we are Wide Atlantic Weird Podcast. So as always, uh, check us out on our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Wide Atlantic Weird. Stay safe. And thanks for listening. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by 